Welcome to another episode of the Drug Classroom Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Guy Jones. He's a chemist in the UK, and he runs Reagent Tests UK, which is a reagent test kit company. And he also works with The Loop, which is one of the more advanced drug checking organizations that goes to festivals and provides harm reduction information and also tests the drug samples that people come in with and tries to figure out what they are and then advises the potential user about what their sample appears to be because in some cases the sample was not what it was sold as. For example, a substituted cathinone being sold as MDMA or 25I NBOME being sold as LSD. And when those issues show up, they can really cause a lot of harm because people cannot adjust their dose accordingly because they think they're using something else. And sometimes the drugs that end up being sold are also substantially more likely to produce harm. So it's a really good organization and it's definitely one of the best in the world in terms of the kind of drug checking that they can do. In this episode we talked about drug checking obviously also harm reduction information for MDMA for research chemicals and other drugs and we touched on some other topics like addiction and psychedelic harm reduction at events which Guy is also involved with through an organization called Cosmicade. Unfortunately as you'll hear later in the episode The last 10 to 15 minutes of this episode somehow got messed up with the recording and my side when I was asking questions is all sort of jumbled up and you can't really make out what I'm saying. His side is fine, but because my questions and anything I'm saying is not coming across, I just decided to take out that last little portion. Most of what we talked about is in the earlier portion, so it's not that much that was lost. However, the main stuff that did get left out was how you can follow Guy and see some of the work that he's done. So if you are interested in that, then I recommend checking out Reagent Tests UK, which you can find at reagent-tests.uk. And you can also click through the link in the description. And then there are also some links in the description to other organizations he's involved with, like Cosmicade and The Loop. So if you want to find out more about them, then you can just follow those. And I'm also including some links to talks that guy has given on topics like drug checking. I really recommend checking those out. They're full of great information. And as always, if you want to support the Drug Classroom because everything TDC does is exclusively supported by donations, then you can go to thedrugclassroom.com support and you can donate via Bitcoin, PayPal, or Patreon. And whatever support you can give is greatly appreciated. So without further ado, here is the episode. I'm here with Guy Jones. Guy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be on. I've seen some of your presentations online and I encourage people to check those out. There's been more in the past year or so than before. So it seems like you're trying to spread some good harm reduction information, but they're great presentations on harm reduction and drug checking. And I also am somewhat familiar with The Loop, which is one of the organizations you're involved with. Um, Can you just give a brief introduction to yourself and then to The Loop? Yeah, so uh, my name is Guy Jones. Um, I've been involved with sort of harm reduction projects since about 2012, uh, originally with an organization called Cosmicare UK, which I'm still involved with uh, now after its name change. And that is like a psychedelic first aid, a psychedelic emergency service 
for music festivals. So if people are having a difficult experience, then we can guide them through that and help them to deal with that experience. We provide them with a safe space where they can play that out and they can um, not be at risk from, you know, being miserable in their tents on their own or maybe in some cases having a negative experience with a conventional medical service who wouldn't have um, the experience to deal with that kind of uh, difficulty. So from that it was really clear to me that we were doing all we could when people came to us and we could really really turn somebody's experience around but we couldn't stop these uh, difficult or problematic experiences happening in the first place. And so when the opportunity came up to get involved with a drug checking project called The Loop, um, it was something that I was really interested in because my background formally is chemistry. So there was really a clear space for me to be able to give some of my expertise and and quite frankly, something I would really enjoy. Um, So The Loop is a completely separate organisation which goes to music festivals and offers people the opportunity to bring a sample and then come back half an hour later to find out what was in that sample, Uh, whether or not the drugs contain a cutting agent, whether it's perhaps even a completely different drug, what the strength of an ecstasy tablet is. Um, They don't get the tablet back, but they get that information and they, alongside that, they also get some information about this is the drug that that you thought you had This is the drug you actually had. And these are the risks that are associated with that drug. And then the the worker works with the person to understand what they already know and then looks for any gaps that might exist in their knowledge to try and help fill in those weak links in the chain that are potentially going to lead to them um, having a a harmful experience or more harmful potentially. So you got into this area from the psychedelic harm reduction where did that interest come from um for me i had some experiences uh through university um or not through the university but while i was at university it wasn't a class uh no it wasn't um, certainly not in a uh, chemistry degree and it was something to me that was really really fascinating i had been with friends who had had difficult experiences at music festivals and really felt a little bit uh, kind of lost i had no idea what to do and when i found out about cosmic aid for me, I, I don't really have the stamina to party for three days in a row. Uh, going to a music festival, I'm quite happy to party one day and then feel like I'm doing something productive with my time. So the opportunity to get involved with Cosmic Aid seemed like a really, really good way to learn and develop some new skills um, and also a different way to enjoy a music festival, which for me is personally preferable. And do the people who are helping out the individuals on drugs who are having a hard time, do they have a background or is it just volunteers who kind of get some training in crisis or emergency management? So with Cosmic Aid, we have a really strict vetting process where every potential volunteer completes a fairly detailed form that allows us to, as best we can with a form, understand what their motivations are, what their experiences um, what what kind of personality they might have and whether or not that would be suitable. Uh, we 
find that that um, vetting process is really successful and really uh, effective compared to when we didn't have it. We did have things like people who would sign up just to get the free ticket and they would never even show up for work. Since we implemented this new process, we've not had any of that at all. So there's uh, people with a varying range of experience. I would say there are certainly a large number of the volunteers in Cosmic Aid do have some experience with the kind of... um, the kind of emotions that people who come to us will be going through. How are the outcomes from this? Does it really reduce how many interactions attendees are having with law enforcement or normal emergency services? Mm. So in the UK, when somebody has a difficult experience like that at a music festival, there's a very, very low chance that law enforcement would get involved. And Often, even if it is necessary for the police to get involved, then they will recognize that this isn't uh, something, this isn't a person acting maliciously, this isn't a person who needs to face a criminal charge. So we are fortunate in the UK that that isn't really something that's a concern. What is a concern is the potential burden on the medical services, both the medical service that's at the festival, but also if somebody needs to have an ambulance to transport them to um hospital then that's a a quite a significant thing that's not covered by somebody's health insurance in the UK that's obviously covered by the local government so our goal really is to try and reduce the strain that's on medical services and produce a more positive outcome if somebody goes into a conventional medical service and is having a really really difficult experience where they're completely their mind is not uh, of this universe, then it is entirely possible that they would need to be held down and sedated forcibly. One of the goals of Cosmic Aid is that if we get a patient like that, then we would never need to sedate them chemically. We would embrace them and just try and listen to what their body language is saying and help them to feel safe and feel like they can relax, that they're maybe not under threat of being injected with, hey, for all they know, and perhaps a common hallucination, it could be poison. So what we're trying to do is a non-pharmacological intervention that not only um, uses our experience to reduce the amount of load on the medical staff, but also yeah, improves the, the outcome of that experience and allows that person to integrate the emotions and the thoughts that they've had. Yeah, especially for psychedelics. And it's not like you're usually ending up with a psychotic response, but more of a just confused. And then that sort of ramps up over time because people get sort of into thought loops or they're scared or mm-hmm. and it, it kind of spirals out of control. But Definitely. It, it's not totally delusional or delirious mm. or psychotic in, in the way that you would have if somebody took way too many stimulants over a three day period. Mm and was having sort of psychosis or ending up with delirium, I don't think it'd be as easy to talk them down. But with psychedelics, it seems really responsive to just a reassuring environment and reassurance in the form of talking and, and explaining that they're okay and there's not really an issue. So it's nice to see these services available because I hear about cases, at least in the US, maybe it's not as common in the UK, where people are having a difficult time and it has gotten excessive and they're making a scene at a festival but then that turns into they're on the ground tied up and they're you know being basically attacked and so that's exactly what we try to prevent is try and reduce the need we work with security help them to understand our role and help them to 
to understand the fact that they don't necessarily need to sit on, you know, have one security guard sitting on each person's limbs for three hours until they come down. If they can get that patient to us or get us to that patient, then we can intervene and help them to calm down more naturally rather than having that huge fight or flight response that makes them feel like they're genuinely fighting for their life. I mean, some of these cases that you hear about, it's because of unintentional overdosing on a misrepresented drug, yeah. like say 25i, but it's also possible to just end up in these situations just from, say, LSD. Mm -hmm. But do you think that that tends to occur due to too much? Or I have seen cases where people take a common dose and somehow have an entirely disproportionate response in terms yeah. of confusion. And is it mainly overdoses or? Not at all. I would say we, I've talked a lot about the sort of really extreme cases and there will at every festival inevitably be uh, a case where somebody is sort of maybe stripped their clothes off or is rolling around in the mud completely disconnected from this reality but we absolutely handle the whole spectrum right from people who are completely sober but they've lost their welly and their feet are cold and they're feeling a bit sad because they've lost their friends all the way up to that really difficult experience so yeah, there will be some cases where maybe people have overdone it a little bit, and that's entirely common at a music festival. It's compounded by the fact that people maybe are getting far less sleep than normal, and their diet is perhaps much less, well, much less healthy than normal. But yeah, there can definitely be times where maybe somebody hasn't tripped for quite a while, and so their tolerance is low, or maybe it's a case where their mindset, they may not necessarily be in the best place to have a psychedelic experience and so the fest they obviously can't move the festival and their mindset maybe they've suffered a trauma recently something like that then yeah they may not be able to stand in the sensory overload of a music stage and they may feel that they need to find somewhere that is safe that is comfortable that they can sit down and go through the thoughts that are coming to them where they aren't going to be sort of hassled and have security come up to them and make sure that they're okay which is often done in entirely uh, good intentions but can have a negative impact on a person if they're kind of sitting quietly enjoying looking at some leaves on the ground and people keep coming up to them and going are you okay are you okay well there's the tendency to sort of think oh well maybe I'm not okay and maybe and these sort of thoughts can as you say run away into a thought loop or something that amplifies itself far beyond what people might normally expect from the dose that they have taken. Yeah, the sensory overload point I think is important because I've never been to uh, any crowded situation when using a, a psychedelic, but I can, I mean, I'll get confused walking around my house. Mm. So I can picture probably for a large portion of people in a, an environment where everything is loud, there's a ton of people, it's not clear where you need to go to get where you're trying to, mm. and making a wrong turn can become a catastrophe that yeah. somehow is ruining the experience. I can see in those cases even where it hasn't elevated to the point where somebody is acting out or mm. causing a scene or really out there with their thinking, but they're having just a difficult time yeah. navigating how even in those cases sort of some some support from people who, who have been there or at least know where that place is, yeah. they can kind of step in and, and help the person out. Yeah, definitely. The, the confusion thing is just so easy to get carried away with. Mm. I think for there, there's just that potential for it to be they're having an experience that maybe just for a few minutes their their mind wanders and they find themselves not enjoying it in the way that they thought they were. And if they aren't at peace with the idea that 
there could be difficult moments in this experience, then there's the tendency to worry and feel, oh, why am I having these thoughts that I didn't want? I'm at a music festival. I'm supposed to be enjoying myself. I'm not allowed to have these feelings. I'm not allowed to have these thoughts that aren't fun. And so it gets into that positive feedback loop again, where people are concentrating on the fact, why am I having bad thoughts? And that's causing them to feel negative, feel anxious and uncomfortable. And it self amplifies. Whereas having somewhere, even a lot of people come up to us and say, just knowing that you're here as a service, is it likely going to be enough to prevent me from having a bad experience if I feel that I'm things are getting too overwhelming I know that I can come to you and I'll be safe and that things aren't going to go wrong and that helps to reassure them and stop those unpleasant feelings becoming overwhelming in the first place it's just like you know having a friend you know nearby and there's just something about having that in the back of your mind that if things get a little out of hand that there Mm. is some solution that you don't have to while impaired also find the solution for yourself because if you've been in these psychedelic states you're probably aware that you can't always navigate yourself out of a problematic situation. So yeah, that that is uh, useful. Getting into drug checking, can you just kind of briefly explain what it is and what the purpose of checking your drugs is? Because people like us and then other people, like the individuals I interact with, even on, on the channel, are often more informed than the average drug user. I mean, they're yep. intentionally looking for information. So I think it's easy to take it for granted that people are aware of reagent tests or energy control or ecstasy data, but a lot of people aren't. So can you just kind of introduce us to the topic? Yeah, so the idea of uh, drug checking or sometimes in the UK, we tend to use the term drug analysis more. We don't want to use the term drug testing because, of course, in the US, there's a very strong connotation that it is like urine testing. We're testing here the drugs. We're not testing the people. Um, And the idea behind it is that some of the harms that come from drug use are associated with dangerous adulterants. And if we can prevent people from taking the 5% or 10% of the drugs on the market that contain some of those dangerous compounds, then maybe we could prevent more than 5 or more than 10% of the harms. Because it tends to be that these imposter substances or these adulterants have a higher tendency to cause harm. One of the things that's really, really important that is added onto that. So that in itself is a useful technique. And that is the principle behind reagent testing, which is where you can use a liquid chemical reagent to test a drug sample at home. The liquid reagents cost in the UK. uh, I run a, a business called Reagent Tests UK. A kit of three bottles of these tests is £15. So about $20. This is something that you can do at home and you can screen for those substitute substances which have been sold. If you've, for example, something we saw a lot of, um, which maybe people will be familiar with about uh, 2012 to 2014, was the sale of methylone and ethylone in the place of MDMA. So with the reagent test, you drip the liquid on. And if it's MDMA, then you would expect these three reagents to turn uh, all three of them to go a kind of purple black color. With methylone, then immediately the first one you test, you get a yellow result and you can say with certainty that is not MDMA. And so you know that if you want to know what it is, you realistically need to send it off for lab testing. Um, But what we would always recommend is the risk is just so high. As soon as you know that your dealer either didn't know what it was or is outright lying to you, well, both of those situations are really potentially 
seriously, seriously problematic, it's better just to chuck it straight in the bin. The loop builds on this concept. And so not only are we running uh, testing, but we also, when we return the results to somebody, we have a qualified harm reduction worker who goes through the result that they get and helps the what we call the service user to understand what the implications are of the what the sample they've received is. So if they get MDMA, then the person may be aware of most of the risks. But if they get something like methylone, then they may absolutely not be. So we really sort of help them to understand what the test result means and help them to further mitigate the risks beyond just this is something different. Because some people, if they paid for it, they've smuggled it into the festival and they don't know where to get more drugs, might still end up taking it. But at least we can equip them with the knowledge to reduce the chance that that is going to go seriously wrong. In reality, um, most of the people who come into the tent, they bought drugs and they intend to take drugs. We recognize that any reduction from 100% of the people coming into that tent taking drugs is likely to reduce the amount of harm that could be done. So there's the, the drug checking side of it. And then the loop builds on that to provide a service that we call multi-agency safety testing, a MAST system, where we're not only doing the drug checking, but we're also providing a harm reduction service that really reduces a lot of the harm. Because in the UK at the moment, the market is such that about 90% of the samples are what people expect them to be. We are still seeing those samples where they are the pure drug that people expect and people are still coming to the medics as a result of those samples. So it's not just, um, we're not just having an issue with mis-selling and adulteration, but we also have an educational issue and the loop aims to tackle both of those to try and reduce the harm much more significantly than either alone. Do you have an idea of the percentage who proceed to use a drug when they know it's something different than what they wanted to get? So we, the way that we, we do collect quite a lot of information. Uh, a lot of that information at the moment is being withheld while we write scientific papers, peer-reviewed papers, because unfortunately politicians, the police, uh, local councils, the public health authority in the UK aren't always willing to simply speak to the medical service and and when they say yeah we had like a 25 percent reduction in drug-related medical admissions um that's not enough for them they put up barriers and they want us to provide peer-reviewed research which is not entirely unreasonable but given that there are people coming to harm right now to me it feels a little obstructive so what we do collect is it's difficult, obviously, to gauge if somebody takes their sample or doesn't give us their sample. We can't really be certain that they are no longer going to take that. But what we can absolutely measure is the number of people who give us the sample to destroy it. In 2016, which was the first year we ran the service, we had about one in five people handed over the sample to be destroyed. So this is where it's been adulterated with something or it's been substituted. Pretty much the vast majority of those people are giving over the sample um, to be destroyed. That one in five is as a percentage of all samples. So it is difficult to gauge. But yes, what we're seeing is that there are of the 100 percent of people who come into the tent expecting to take the drug that they've bought because well they didn't spend money on it so they could throw it in the bin we are in 2016 we reduced that number uh, by 20 percent if we then also look at the medical statistics from the services that are running alongside us they in the first year we thought 
wow, 25% reduction in drug-related medical cases only. That's really strange. Maybe it's something to do with the weather this year because it was a little bit better in the UK. It's changeable, to say the least, in the summer. By the time we had done two festivals in year one and came to our first festival in year two, and again, another, a further 25% reduction in medical admissions due to drugs. And we start to think, hey, maybe this isn't a coincidence. And this is something that we're now consistently seeing event after event. The more people that access the service, the fewer people are presenting to the medics with drug-related issues. And do you think that a big part of that is the education, not the checking necessarily, but just interacting with a knowledgeable organization? When I first found out about the loops, kind of the way they wanted to operate i was as a chemist as somebody who has a really good understanding of what the risks of these compounds are to me it's really obvious and i thought nobody's going to sit through a 15 minute like lecture about the harms of the drug nobody's going to use the service that's terrible it's going to put everybody off as soon as we did the first event i couldn't have been converted faster being able to see the level of engagement that people had with the service and with the harm reduction worker was just incredible compared to i've i've been at events before running a running harm reduction stands where it's literally just giving away like condoms water sun cream information leaflets the engagement with it is so minimal people just don't ask questions they really aren't really interested in now that i think about it it's like the comparison of what i thought comparing the testing service to the just information service i thought it was going to be the other way around, where the testing service was going to have even worse engagement because you were forced, in inverted commas, to have this lecture. But it would totally turned it on its head for me. The thing is that we've broken like the veil of trust. People have already handed over a sample of drugs to us. They've got nothing to hide. They recognize that they're not going to get into trouble. They recognize that they can be honest with us about what they know, what they don't know, the experience they have. And so they're really happy. They have privacy because they're in uh, like a screened privacy booth. They're really happy to talk to us about their experiences and their knowledge. And so you can have what is essentially a conversation with somebody who really, really knows what they're talking about. And people respond well to that. People actually really want to know about what they're putting in their bodies. They really want to keep themselves safe. Nobody, it turns out, comes to a music festival with an intention of going to the medics. People are really receptive to the idea that actually they do have control over their own destiny, as it were. They don't. It's not Russian roulette. It's not like you take an ecstasy tablet and you've got a one in six chance of going to the medics no matter what you do. Actually, if you sensibly hydrate, if you're careful with your dosages, maybe starting with a lower dose and then um, having a second dose a bit later on instead of taking the whole lot in one go, you can really reduce the risk of coming to harm. So although originally I would have said uh, the testing that is just going to reduce. So honestly, I think the testing, yes, in those 10% of cases where there's mis-selling, that obviously is a huge reduction, a reducer of harm. But in the other cases, in the rest of the 90% of cases, the education is just 
allows you as well because we can listen to what they know and what they don't know and choose to focus really specifically on what they don't know we can really strengthen the weak links in the chain that would have otherwise resulted in them going to the medics so yeah i think you're right there's a huge impact that's had by just improving the education that's given to people there's probably some self-selection going on for the attendees who are Mm -hmm. interested in using the service at all versus those who just continue to walk through and use without checking but it does go against the idea that drug users are just looking for pleasure and they don't care how they get there and they don't care what the risks are along the way and people will say things like using drugs is basically signing up to encounter some form of harm or Mm. or accepting that that harm is going to likely occur but it's not actually the intention of use and the fact that anybody who is going into these settings with drugs and then changing their behavior in some way to reduce the harm says a lot about how education could reduce harm and that the stats we see associated with drugs are not representative of some inherent as you were saying you know the one in six is not a guaranteed one in six and that's not how people tend to view it they tend to view any any headline discussing a negative response from a drug at some event as being just some portion of people will always Mm. end up like this and they don't realize that there's other factors along the way. I think people have this message drummed into them to a certain extent that it's Russian roulette, you don't control the risks, and so they just resign themselves to that. They accept that as a fact of drug use. They still want to enjoy themselves, but they're going to do this anyway. They're going to take risks. Humans inevitably take risks. It's something that we're really compared to other species, very good at. It's what's caused us to evolve, kind of technologically. But when you give people the... When you get them to believe that they really have control over this, and I absolutely believe that they do, and I think the results that we're seeing show that they do, and interacting with these people, you see somebody come into the service who is very... um, cavalier about the risks surrounding drugs they they really kind of almost make a joke of it but when you sit them down and you engage with them and you talk to them and it's sort of presented very frankly they they realize oh shit this person really knows this stuff they really do want to learn it is so easy to turn that conversation around and and get people listening and suddenly they have an interest and and it really feels like you make a huge impact on people like that and again the the statistics that we see coming out of it are showing the same thing and how the conversation takes place in terms of it not being judgmental about drug use is probably a key factor because i think a lot of people have come to associate anything a a physician or a teacher is saying about drugs as being they just assume it's sort of nonsense and they don't know what they're talking about and they're just talking about harms that almost never occur and are not really worth discussing and it's just a scare tactic so the fact that people will go through this session or this conversation and actually listen to people talking about the harms says a lot probably about how the way you deliver the message can really impact what people take from the message Mm, yeah definitely and i think that is part of the reason that some people come into the service with this cavalier attitude is that they think they're gonna get a dry lecture that they've heard and they've seen before on the news when actually they get to speak to a real person who's worked with people everybody who does the harm reduction interview stage is either a drug worker or a nurse or a doctor who has specific experience of working with people who use drugs. And they have a specific understanding 
of the the way that the loop works and the kind of people they're going to come across they understand that trying to give them scare tactics as as we say we understand that pretty much 100% of the people coming in to get their drugs tested bought those drugs and intend to take them. So we've gone past the point where scare tactics could be effective. They've literally already gone out, bought the drugs and made their minds up. What we need to do now is try and persuade them the existing approaches to that, trying to scare people by telling them, oh, if you take ecstasy, then you're going to die. That's not worked. So we take a completely different approach. We talk to them really frankly about, look, this is the effects of the drug. These are the positive effects that you're looking for. These are the negative effects. Those two things don't have to be completely entwined. You can reduce the negative effects and potentially increase your enjoyment by drinking a sensible amount of water, taking a break every half an hour to make sure you're not overheating. And people really respond to that because we're not telling them, oh, if you dance while you're on ecstasy, you're going to overheat and die. We're telling them, oh, here's a way that I could enjoy myself more and be safer. Well, great. Why would I not do that? So, yeah, I think it's it's really important that we have a different approach because we're literally the last line of defense and the conventional approach has clearly failed by that point. What are the laws like in the UK for setting up these services at music events? The law is always a difficult issue. There is no specific exemption in UK law for a charity running a drug checking service. And the loop, I mean, the Home Office, pretty much the Home Office is the government body that would oversee um, the overseas drug law and for a laboratory if you were in a medical setting they would grant you a license to handle those drugs more or less you can't get a license for a temporary setup to handle drugs you have to have a fixed address in order um, where the drugs are going to be stored and handled so that they can come around and perform an inspection and make sure it's secure we almost can't even get that licensing what we do instead is we work really closely and I think a lot of people would be surprised about how supportive the police are for our work. We work really closely with the police because they recognize that it takes pressure off of them. They don't need to be working as a backup ambulance service. They don't need to be working as a backup security service in the same way. They can focus on violent crime, on robbery. Sexual assault is quite a problem in the UK at festivals at the moment. And they can point their efforts at what they're best at doing. And we as chemists, as harm reduction workers, can point our efforts at what we're best of doing. And so it's kind of a, a leverage thing to to make sure that each person is having the maximum positive impact, be they a police officer or a lab worker. We work with the police. We're effectively under an extension of their drug handling license at that event. We operate completely with their permission and it is understood that the police aren't going to come to our tent because if there was an infinite number of police available sure then they would assign one police officer to every person at the event to make sure that there were no drugs getting in or used but realistically they have limited resources and they then will choose to allocate their resources to what is causing the most harm what they can have the most impact on so they will then go and focus their time in the campsite, in the stages, to look out for these other issues, particularly with the violent and sexual crimes, while we focus on keeping people safe alongside the medics, which is our area of expertise. Do you ever run into local police forces or other authority groups that are opposed or skeptical of what you're proposing to do? Yeah, absolutely. So we have some police forces that we work with really, really closely, um, that we have a history of working with. Before we were doing the public testing, we were doing what we call back of house. 
So it's not accessible to the public and also halfway house where the medics or the police or welfare are directly bringing us samples so that they can test substances of concern. If somebody comes into the medics and they don't know what they've taken, but and the person maybe doesn't know or can't respond to say what they've taken, they can bring us that sample and we'll inform them. So we built up a relationship doing that. We've shown them our expertise and professionality, and we have that really good relationship. There are other forces which we haven't worked with who are, yes, much more sceptical. However, in our experience, it's not the police who are most likely or most sceptical, most likely to be sceptical or most sceptical. It tends to be actually the health authorities. In the UK, we have an organisation called Public Health England who are responsible for overseeing health matters in the UK. So they'll do things like thinking about legislation for um, e-cigarettes and vaporisers and thinking about how does that going to impact the health of people in the UK versus smoking cigarettes. They'll also think about things like what we're doing. How is this drug checking going to impact the health of people at music festivals? And if there is a concern about the liability that's associated with our service, if somebody comes to our service and we say to them, this is pretty much 100% pure MDMA and they leap in the air, rush out and neck a whole gram of this. Of course, they're still going to be at an extreme risk. The question then is, unfortunately, whose fault is that? This person's been injured. Where does the responsibility lie? Is it with the medics who couldn't save them? Is it with the police who allowed the loop to operate on site? Is it with the loop for telling this person that it was 100% pure? Is it with the person for making that reckless decision? Or is it with the public health authority who allowed the loop service to operate? And the public health authority potentially could bear a significant amount of that liability. And so they do have valid concerns. And that was one of the reasons that initially we decided to implement this model of um, having the advice session, despite some people's scepticism. So the police, by and large, tend to be really significant supporters uh, because they really recognise that it takes pressure off them and it allows them to focus on what they do best and it will keep people as safe as possible. In the UK, there is there is effectively no such thing as for-profit policing. Police who are making uh, seizures of drug deals and things like that, that doesn't go to the local department. There really, really is a culture within the police of people who want to help, who want to give back to their community, who want to make their community safer. And so we see a really positive attitude among police officers, particularly senior police, who really do have the best interests of the people attending these events at heart. Sometimes we even work with police who's, who have children, um, or not really children anymore, but their sons and daughters might be at the event. They really understand that there is a benefit. These people aren't degenerate teenagers or young adults who are coming to this event and they're getting wasted. These are people's sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, friends and loved ones. There really is an incentive for everybody to try and reduce harm as much as possible. But yes, at the end of the day, no organisation wants to face any liability, wants to be at the end of a legal battle. 
um, if somebody dies and their parent says, well, this is your fault because you told them that that sample was pure. That's pretty encouraging to hear. I mean, I don't want to generalize about the US, but from just news and talking to some people, it doesn't seem um, like the typical response is as is as nice from authority groups, including the police. There seems to be more running up against the classic stigma and even yeah. stigma against harm reduction as though it's not possible to reduce the harms. Um, and some people also try to oppose these efforts because they don't eliminate harm. And mm -hmm. therefore, if they don't go all the way, then somehow it's what pointless to do it. I'm not sure what the argument is, mm -hmm. but you actually have people saying that it gives yeah. people a, a false sense of security. And you're telling people wrongly that they yeah. can use drugs in a safe way. Just in the U.S., that I feel like it's not as there's not as good of a response to these efforts, but I might be wrong. It's hard to talk about 50 states and yeah. 300 million people like that. But at least in the UK, I mean, that's encouraging to hear. Getting into the science, the different methods for drug checking, the most common one that people use are just reagent liquids. Can you explain like what those are and how they give a result about a certain drug being in there? Yeah, so reagent tests tend to be, uh, they're effectively an extremely reactive chemical mixture that will react with a compound in order to, you can think of it as producing a dye out of that compound. So we're effectively making a dye and the color of that dye, the wavelengths of light that it absorbs or reflects are going to be dependent on its molecular structure. So with reagent tests, we can only use our eyes to analyze that resultant color of that dye. So they're maybe not the most, I mean, they're certainly not the most reliable testing method, but they at least give us an idea we can't maybe tell apart two different, very similar shades of yellow, but you better believe that a human eye can easily tell apart a shade of purple against a shade of yellow. The idea with these tests is that they react with a particular part of the molecule. So there's one, for example, which is particularly looking for a hydroxy group attached to a benzene ring. There is another reagent that is used to test for LSD, which is particularly looking for what we call an indole, which is a, a, a bicyclic ring structure. I try not to get too technical. And when it finds these parts of the molecule, the reagent reacts with them to turn them into a dye molecule. So essentially, we're just looking for that color change to try and see, is this the compound I expected or is it something completely different? And therefore, the results are not conclusive in terms of telling you that you do have MDMA, but especially after multiple tests, the expected color result, you're really reducing the chance quite substantially of having something else. It's really important to use more than one test because, say, for example, uh, the first test that you do reacts with the compound you want, but doesn't react with some of the cutting agents or doesn't react with a substance that might be sold in its place or even worse, has the same color change for your desired compound as for a substitute compound. So by testing with a number of reagents, you hugely reduce the chance of getting that issue where two compounds have the same reaction. Because although they might well have the same reaction for the first reagent, you then test it with a second and a third. And instead of seeing purple, black, black, you see purple, black, green. Then suddenly you think, oh, crap, something is wrong here. This is not the compound that I expected. I need to either do further analysis or, quite frankly, chuck it in the bin. Where it struggles is where you've got cutting agents that are also going to give a color change, 
If, for example, you mix uh, a compound that goes yellow with a compound that goes blue, well, the two dye molecules stirred together are going to give you a green reaction. And so you think, oh, a green reaction. Well, that's actually not necessarily the compound I expected, but it's this. So by, again, testing with those multiple compounds, you can see, oh, hold on, it went green for the first one, so I thought it was this, but now it's gone this other different color that that compound shouldn't have gone. So I don't any longer think it's that. They aren't perfect, but they do just give you so much more information than looking at a white crystal. It's not about harm elimination. It's about harm reduction and reducing the chances that someone's going to injure themselves. When people send off a sample to a service like Energy Control or Ecstasy Data, they use other techniques to more definitively tell you what chemical is in the sample. And those are based around GCMS and LCMS. Can you explain without too much technical detail how those work and why they're uh, substantially better if you're trying to actually find out what you do have? Yeah. So the reagent tests are really great at home, but outside of that, in any sort of lab environment, they're really not enough. And, and the loop has this issue that if we were running the service with just reagents, then that would absolutely put us in this spotlight of liability where we couldn't rely on the results to, to be accurate enough. When you're in a fixed laboratory, they tend to use a technique called, they, they there are two steps, essentially. The first is what's called a chromatography step which relies on different shapes of the molecule or different shapes of different molecules passing along what we call a column. And depending on the shape of those molecules, it's either going to travel more quickly or more slowly along the column. So this causes a mixture of compounds to separate out into separate ones. That's really important because then the signal, when we do the second step, the analysis, is going to be for a single compound on its own. And you don't get this issue that you do with a simple reagent test where you have a yellow and a blue that gives you a green result. You could potentially get the same issue with um, mass spectroscopy. doesn't just give you out one number. It's quite a complex chart. And if you had two compounds mixed together, then you would have a really, really tough time trying to decipher that. So you've got this separation step. And then the MS stands for mass spectrometry. And what in simple terms it does is it tells you the exact mass of the molecule. There is some issue that also parts of the molecule break off. So you don't just get one mass. This is where it comes in. You get a complex chart, but you can generally understand quite easily what the mass of the molecule you've measured is. So for each compound in there, you get the what we call the retention time, how long it takes to get through the column. And then you also get the mass of the molecule. And then there's another technique that you use with the loop. How does that differ from these other lab techniques? The loop uses initially inspired by budgetary constraints and also inspired by what the UK Home Office was using uh, and is using, a technique called FTIR or Fourier Transform Infrared. What this does is it shines an infrared light at the sample, and it looks at, in the same way that when we are using colorimetric reagents, we're looking at the colors that come back in the visible spectrum, the FTIR instrument is shining a range of different colors of infrared light at the sample, and it's looking at which ones are reflected and which ones are absorbed. And it uses that information, it builds up across the whole infrared spectrum a really detailed picture of which colors are reflected and which are absorbed. And 
it corresponds really specifically to the bonds in the molecule. So because the bonds in a molecule make the molecule what it is, they are the, the bonds that interact in the human brain, we can be certain or near enough certain that we have a specific compound because we have a really much more resolution than eight different colours that the eye can resolve. We have about just under a thousand different levels uh, different colors if you like that it can resolve and so we build up this big spectrum and we can match that against the compound library that contains about 80,000 different compounds and see algorithmically which one does this compound match to this whole process happens with the aid of a modern computer processor in about 60 seconds so we can really really quickly get a really good result this is something and um, one of the benefits over GCMS is that that whole process is about 60 seconds. Whereas with GCMS maybe takes 10 to 20 minutes, this means that we can get through, we've got two instruments, including the data entry, the loop handles about one sample every minute. And at the busy festivals, that is literally from the moment we open to the moment we close, that is our, um, it's not quite our average. Our average is a little lower than that, but our best record in one hour is about 60.5 samples in an hour. And that is, we can score that pretty consistently between about 56 and 60 samples in an hour. And is it more portable too, to be using this technique? Yeah. So that's, um, very good point. Where I said the GCMS is very usable in a fixed laboratory, there are portable solutions for that, but they cost even more. So a typical GCMS setup costs about forty to fifty thousand pounds. The FTIR setup is about twenty-five thousand. A portable GCMS setup will start to move even further towards the hundred thousand pounds mark. So FTIR is a great advantage on cost for us, and it's a great advantage the instrument in its carry case weighs about 11 kilograms and is the size of a shoebox. It's really small, it's really fast, it's really accurate, and it allows us to get a lot of information about the sample. It works well at a, a festival if you have a, an organization available, though I don't know if any organizations in the US are using anything like that in the mm. field. I've only ever heard of it with the loop. I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with other groups that have gone beyond reagent tests. Mm. In the US, I think you're right, it comes back to this law enforcement problem, this policing issue if you've got a £20,000 piece of kit and you're doing something in the grey area of the law, I'm sure that you and your listeners will be aware if I've heard of it. But my understanding of civil forfeiture law in the US is that you don't have to be convicted of a crime for the police to be able to seize uh, an item of your property if they allege it was involved in a crime. So, yeah, there's a real issue there that if you spend $25,000, $30,000 of donations on this piece of equipment and it gets confiscated by the police at the first event, I can understand why that's not in use in the US. Yeah, that's a way to ruin a weekend. But yeah. There's an organization called Karmic in Canada who have just bought the same instrument that the Loop uses. There is another organization in, uh, I think, the British Columbia. Um, uh, maybe I'm not supposed to say that they're looking at this. So an organization in BC in Canada that is also looking at getting the same instrument. There's an organization in New Zealand that has the same one and also one in the Netherlands. So this is something the loop was the first harm reduction organization to try this technology and it's really starting to catch on now. It isn't quite as good as GCMS. It uses a digital disentanglement of the signals instead of that chromatography step. So it can run into problems. It can't detect fentanyl, for example. We still use immunoassay strips for that, but 
it has some big advantages in the speed uh, of the testing and that it can be used for the vast majority of samples to give a really good analysis. And with the loop, we could not go through 1,142 samples, 1,132, sorry, in one festival as we did this year if each sample took 20 minutes to run. That just wouldn't be possible. And people, I think that would really put people off if they were told, look, you're in a queue you're going to get your results back in six days' time. Well, that's no good to them because they want to take those drugs this evening. Are there any advancements coming down the line that would allow people at home or for organizations to more easily afford some kind of advanced, at least superior to reagents uh, Mm -hmm. technique? Is there anything that's going to reduce the cost of running better tests in the near future? So I'm really, really excited about uh, some of the small handheld near-infrared spectrometers. They use slightly different technology to FTIR, but they are about 1% to 2% of the price. So if we could get 10% of the accuracy for that 1% to 2% of the price, around $500 to $1,000, then potentially that could really change the decentralization of harm reduction organizations. You could really have a lot more nodes out there who have the ability to do more advanced drug checking. Unfortunately, I bought one of the um, the first one of these that came to market, the SIO. And so far, I've really found that the resolution that it offers in terms of the spectral resolution is just not good enough to be able to distinguish two compounds with a very high level of confidence that we would need. We're definitely on that path. Ten years ago, this would have still been costing in the same region as FTIR. So we're making huge progress, but we're not quite there yet. I I hope that in the next sort of five years, we'll get there. And this summer, the loop is hoping to do some more work to try and see, is there some way that we can incorporate this into our workflow? You mentioned briefly fentanyl. I don't know if that really matters for the UK in the same way it has Mm. recently in North America, but the drug checking, which would be quite important because the main issue, well, a portion of the issue is people receiving fentanyls in place of oxycodone or hydrocodone or heroin and they don't know that they're taking it. Some people do when they choose to take it, but other people just don't. And so therefore drug checking would be great, but you have to use a different method for looking for fentanyl, right? Yeah. So the UK really hasn't had the same issues with fentanyl. It is, as far as I'm aware, exclusively within the opioid supply. And that in the UK is almost exclusively heroin rather than prescription opioids. Opioids are very, um, there is much less prescribing of them in the UK through the NHS. However, it is something that we need to be aware of. And yeah, we are, we know that FTIR won't pick that up. At the moment, we're really happy with the immunoassay strips that are, it's a simple drug testing strip and it reacts to the exact shape of the fentanyl molecule and some of the analogs to show up either two lines if it's a, let me get this right, negative and one line if it's a positive. So yes, this is something that we're potentially going to struggle with and yes, it will be something that if it starts to become a big issue in the UK, we're going to need to think about what kind of equipment we use to tackle that. Most likely what we call an LCMS system, which is a similar technology to GCMS. But for the time being, it's something that we're very, in the UK, it's sad to say, but we're very fortunate that that North America, Canada and the US, that is, are doing the pioneering work and really 
helping understand what the what the threat is and how best to deal with it. What is it about the drug which is necessitating the use of different techniques? The dosage of fentanyl is about 0.1 milligrams and potentially even less. So to put that in context, the dosage of MDMA is 100 milligrams and even that is one tenth of a gram. So it is just such a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. If you get two doses of fentanyl and you mix them in with some baking soda, the amount of actual fentanyl that's in there is potentially fatal, but it is a tiny amount to try and analyze. You even have the issue that if you take a small sample of that and it wasn't mixed properly, even though you've got the most sensitive piece of equipment in the world, you're potentially going to miss that fentanyl because the dealer didn't mix it up properly. So it's just the fact that we have this tiny amount of substance makes it really physically difficult to detect. And then on top of that, there are analogs, which are obviously different compounds, which are even more potent. So there's potentially even less of them required in terms of the physical amount to produce a fatal effect. If that was then included in ecstasy tablets, people aren't getting the stimulation they expect. Maybe they mistake the effects of the fentanyl as it being a mild or weak pill. So they take two more, then potentially they're going to end them up in an overdose situation. And that can obviously risk their life. So it's really just a, a potency issue because there's other potent drugs like LSD and 25i, mm -hmm. but those are tested with, like they would work with right. the technique that the loop uses. Yeah. So LSD is has a dose actually around the same level as fentanyl. It is a special case in a way because we have what's called the Ehrlich reagent, which is really, really sensitive to this part of the LSD molecule. And we are so lucky that that is the case. It's not like we can consistently reproduce that design, that by design for other molecules. If there was a substance like MDMA that was active in the same amounts as LSD, then off the top of my head, there is no way that we would be able to detect that using any kind of common reagent test. We would have to be looking for that in the same way that we do for fentanyl. So it's not necessarily that it's fentanyl that's special in how hard it is to detect. It's more the case that LSD has a really impressive physical safety margin. So the chance of death from overdose is effectively zero. And it's got this particular molecular structure that allows us to pick up on it more easily than we can uh, for other molecular structures. Before leaving that topic, it just came to mind. There's still debate that I see online regarding the test when dealing with one PLSD and ALD52, with some people just not, even though they're getting it from a source that's almost certainly yeah. fine, it's not hitting as positive. Do we know what the response is supposed to be? Looking at the way that the Ehrlich reagent works, the way that it turns purple when it's exposed to LSD is specifically related to a part of the molecule that is closed off in 1PLSD. So the same place that the Ehrlich reagent reacts to form the dye is the place where the 1P part in 1PLSD is added on. We would fully expect that that Ehrlich reagent can't react with that part of the molecule to change color. So our expectation is that in 100% pure 1PLSD, we would not see a color change with the Ehrlich reagent. In reality, it's entirely possible that there's small amounts of LSD or other indole compounds, maybe rather than 
it being LSD, it might be something from a bit further back in the synthesis that has this part of the molecule that has this indole in it, then that could be, and I expect is what's responsible for causing the purple reaction that we see. I wanted to talk about sort of some general research chemical topics, um, not too much about any specific drugs, but one of the things is just do we know enough about the structure activity relationships with different substances and the different classes to have any idea about, say, 6-APB being less neurotoxic than MDMA? I mean, there's a lot of assertions that are made and a lot of extrapolation from we know the safety of amphetamine, so is the addition of one atom somewhere on that molecule going to change the safety? Mm. Do we know enough about how these structures impact pharmacology and toxicology to make guesses about the RCs? So I think there was a lot of excitement early on when these compounds were released that they might offer structural modifications that made them really resistant to the metabolism that can be responsible for some of the toxicity that's associated with some drugs. That is something that I still think there is a lot of potential for these drugs to resist. For example, uh, let's take the case of 6-APB. 6-APB is a modified version of MDA where one um, oxygen molecule is replaced with a methyl group. Uh, one oxygen atom is replaced with a methyl group. And the, the theory is that because that makes the methylene dioxy ring, this is getting very technical very quickly, um, resistant to coming off of the molecule, then it's much less likely to form one of the metabolites that is thought to be responsible for some of the harms of MDMA. Now, that may be true, and maybe that is something that uh, is good. But then there is also the concern with 6-APB that it might be more harmful to the heart. So there's sort of this unintended consequences. Although we, of course, we can never be certain that it's not uh, causing the original harm, we also have to consider that it, could it be causing harm in a different way as well? Essentially, the answer to your question is no, we don't have certainty. We can make extrapolations and we can look rationally and apply uh, kind of logical principles and think about, okay, this molecule is normally metabolized in this way. If we change that molecule and it still has the same effects, then is it reasonable to expect it to be resistant to that type of metabolism? And you can make that sort of sweeping extrapolation, but until you've got scientific studies, you can't say that with certainty. Yeah, or even setting aside certainty, I mean, take a, instead of 6-APB and, and intactogens, like mm -hmm. take just a 3-FA or something that is just a minimally substituted amphetamine and... Are there other examples if, say, 3-FEA has not been studied for its comparison to amphetamine, but would there be other examples in chemistry and pharmacology where the addition of a single atom, like a fluorine, yeah. is somehow totally changing what it's doing? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the example of 4-chloroamphetamine, uh, uh, parachloroamphetamine, then the simple addition of that chlorine is enough to make it into quite a potent neurotoxin for serotonin axons. The crucial thing that we need to think about is you can't necessarily say, okay, well, what if you put a fluorine in the same position? That's surely going to do the same thing. You've got to consider the uh, way that a chlorine molecule behaves, the way that it binds in the body, the way that it's metabolized. So 
you have to consider each case on a case-by-case -case basis. Although chlorine and fluorine are in the same group of compounds, you can't say they're going to behave the same because fluorine forms a much, much stronger bond with the carbon that's present in amphetamine. So you can't say, okay, well, chlorine does this, then it's reasonable to expect fluorine to do this. You have to look at each one on a case-by-case -case basis. At least with 4-FA compared to 4-CA, that did seem to be the case because it was, I think there was one study when I was looking for research and, and it did find that compared to 4-CA, it was not as much of a concern. And, and at least you were not seeing the initial, you know, signs of serotonergic toxicity that seemed to exist with 4-CA or definitely do. And that would be a great finding if you could then say that says something Thing about a fluorine substitution because you have maybe not most but a large portion of the amphetamines in the RC market are specifically that that is the substitution they have obviously we don't know for certain that it's the case but is it then fair to think placing the same substitution elsewhere is going to maintain its relatively better safety profile than a chloro substitution or something the the thing is that again you you run into this issue where it's not only dependent on the molecule, but also, so in the example of, um, to go back to 4FA again, it is that position is particularly, it seems, the way that it fits in to the molecule that metabolizes it with a chlorine in that position, it's really easy for it to pull it off. If you moved that fluorine to a um, off of the ring and onto the alkane part of the molecule, then the um, carbon-fluorine bond in an alkane is not as strong. So potentially, we wouldn't really necessarily expect to see this, but potentially we're going to then see a it, it's able to be metabolized in a way that it wasn't before. What is your position then on research chemicals in general regarding how people should be using them? Because I think a lot of people go primarily by anecdotal reports and their own experience and they find a certain drug say 2-FMA is a very clean functional stimulant as they say mm. and it doesn't feel which obviously is you know a silly way to figure out toxicity mm. but it doesn't feel like it's doing anything bad over a period of time and look, it's not that much different from methamphetamine and we know what methamphetamine does but you have people then taking that and then using it on a daily basis for a long period of time. What are your thoughts on people making mm -hmm. that jump in the face of so little clear evidence of safety? I mean, it's down to each person's individual risk tolerance. To me, there's with uh, so looking at 2FMA in this individual um, on this individual basis, what is the theory behind it is that the addition of that fluorine atom is enough to prevent it from properly fitting into the enzyme that would normally break it down and produce one of the harmful compounds that methamphetamine is broken down into. So that's the logic behind it. It is then down to whether or not that person strongly enough trusts that theory and whether or not they think they can predict anything else that might be going on. It would be foolish to say 
based on the fact that we don't have any research. And this is something to me that's interesting too. FMA is an interesting compound and it's been around for quite a long time. It's a little surprising to me that it's received as little academic law enforcement attention as it has, especially with people comparing it directly to things like Vivance and Adderall as a study drug. I would have thought that that would attract the attention of the authorities a little bit. But without that research, it's really difficult to say with any certainty is that a sound assumption to make? One of the drugs that's been of interest to me recently is 3-FEA. Have you thought at all about what you think might be going on with the pharmacology of that? There were some old studies, but it didn't. we don't really know much. My understanding is that it is um, somewhere in between the kind of two and the four position, perhaps unsurprisingly from the name, but if we look at structure activity relationship, that's not always to be expected in that it's fairly stimulating, but it also seems to have a serotonergic component a little bit like 4FA does. I mean, that is just, in a way, a, a really good example of how a tiny change to a molecule can potentially have a significant impact on the way it affects the body. Um, and in turn, it wouldn't be unreasonable to say maybe it could have a significant impact on the way the body affects it, i.e. how it's metabolized. As you say, there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of research on it. I would expect it, again, using this kind of extrapolation that we don't have studies to work from, to have a similar fate in the body as 2-FMA, as 4-FMA does. Um, but can I say that with certainty? Am I able to predict the fact that, hey, maybe it doesn't fit into this uh, enzyme, but perhaps it fits into this one instead? No, I can't. There's a good example with the M-BOM series of compounds. It was thought that adding anything onto the nitrogen of a 2C compound like 2CI would simply make it inactive. And this was trialed. Um, they made methyl versions of each one, and it really just completely killed the psychedelic activity. But when you go crazy and turn that small methyl group into a huge benzyl group, then actually it massively increases the potency in some cases by 10 times. So yeah, there's absolutely cases where, especially with large changes, we can't predict the outcome of what potentially could be happening there. One of the things that's of interest to me, and I did a fair amount of research specifically for MDMA yeah. on trying to figure out the source of the neurotoxicity or, or whatever changes are present. And we still don't know, but there's some progressively better theories for why there's some kind of toxicity. What is your thought? And mainly in the context of do you think it's MDMA specific or is there something about anything releasing serotonin in that manner that comes with this this neurotoxic risk? I think there could be a component of both if I had to speculate. There are a lot of studies on this and to do um, to do a literature review on it actually could be a really useful and interesting um, paper. Uh, if somebody out there listening has uh, some time and works with a, an academic institution. There are studies that, for example, look at um, metabolites and look at things like depletion of glutathione in the liver and how that impacts the toxicity. There are studies that look at injection directly into the brain in rats. There's a wide range of things that people have done to try and rule out one thing or the other. If I had to say, then I would 
certainly advise people to treat it as not just something that's inherent to MDMA, but really people should be treating um, other serotonergic compounds with that same level of respect. Because what there could be, for example, is an issue where when we deplete serotonin levels to a significant extent, then could dopamine be taken up into the serotonin neuron and metabolized in a way that turns it into an oxidative species, a free radical that can then potentially cause damage or even um, death of that neuron. So that's something that has been theorized and suggested and seems actually quite plausible. So we've got to think about, yes, maybe there are um, metabolite issues and maybe you can mitigate that by taking this, that or the other supplement. But hey, let's also be really moderate with consumption and um, even if you've found something that gives you the same effects maybe even if there is a theoretical support for the fact that it wouldn't cause those metabolites maybe it's good to be moderate with its use as well and who knows maybe the benefit of reducing uh, the tolerance build and taking it only on special occasions will even increase people's enjoyment as well. And what do you think that that reasonable limitation of frequency would be? Because I tossed around a month and the most common mm. thing is three, though three is really just... Yeah. I don't think anybody ever came up with a theory saying three made sense and that kind of stuck, but rather it just yeah. ended up there because of Shulgin or something and, and then stuck around for really no reason. Yeah. I think it's there's something important to consider here is that if we look at the empirical observations, looking at some people in the British population where MDMA is about, at the moment, maybe £25 a gram uh, and has been cheap in the past, people have really, really overdone it like a gram a week kind of thing. Um, if we look through that population and try and sift and think about how it affects people, there is a huge variation. There are some people who will happily have been taking ecstasy for years every week or every other week and really seem to have suffered no ill effects. Conversely, there are people who would have done exactly the same thing for only six months and are then reporting that they have really bad anxiety and they get crippling come downs and they don't get the same enjoyment out of MDMA even when they've taken a significant tolerance break. For me, what I would advise would, in the absence of really good evidence on this, would be avoid building up any tolerance. Because one thing that we do know is that the more that you take, the more likely you are to expose yourself to the harms associated with that drug. If you are building tolerance, then you're inevitably going to have to build your dose to get the same effect out of it. And you're going to inevitably end up ramping up that dosage and ramping up the harm levels. If you keep your use to an interval where you're not building up tolerance, then you have so much less potential for that, not only because you're taking it less frequently, but when you do, you're taking less, smaller amounts. And hopefully, coming back to what I said before about other serotonergic compounds, if it's being kept to special events and you've got no tolerance, you're not experiencing increased side effects relative to enjoyable effects, then you might even find that you enjoy it a lot more when you do take it and you experience less of the side effects and risks that are um, that are associated with it. So for me, from what I've seen and what I've found from speaking to people, it seems that that sweet spot lies somewhere within uh, the one to three month range for most people. Yes, there are people who can get away with really rinsing it, but it's kind of difficult to find out if you're one of those people without trying it. And if it turns out you're not, then damn, you're not going to enjoy MDMA 
nearly as much in the future. And potentially, in some cases, there's uh, issues with reduced verbal memory and increased day-to-day anxiety, which... Uh, that'd be a pretty horrible thing to find out that not only are you not of these great resistant genetics, but also you've got these issues for the rest of uh, a long term. The encouraging thing is that when you look at all the cognitive impairment studies, there is a relative absence of really significant and distinct differences between, or at least evidence of impairment between Uh, non-users or infrequent users compared to pretty heavy users, which is not to say that it's free of harm, but the idea that even if you overdo it, it's going to produce the level of harm that is the classic holes in your brain type of thing, where you're just going to, you know, start losing mental faculties left and right as the months go on. That doesn't seem to occur, which is somewhat encouraging for a drug, which so clearly does some negative lasting Mm. thing if you give enough, even human level doses to animals. Either that means so much damage can take place before you see impairment, which means you still probably don't want to do the damage, or that we're more resistant to that damage than rats and monkeys. And I'm I'm hoping for the latter, but it could easily be Mm. the former, Um, in which case, who knows, the issue of impairment might show up when you're 70 and having more cognitive decline than you should be at that age. So yeah, I agree with sort of reducing use, but I, I really do hope that over time we'll figure out if it's possible to have an intactogen experience, which is not, not as likely to mm. produce these issues. And therefore you can do it, yeah. um, in accordance with tolerance akin to psychedelics. So once, yeah. once a week or once every two weeks and, and you're fine. Yeah, I think it would be, and this is something that people are exploring. So, for example, David Nutt in the UK is looking at a a serotonergic drug or, well, has suggested a serotonergic drug called 5-MEAI could be used as a possible sort of social tonic as an alternative to alcohol. And the idea is not that it's harmless, but that it simply reduces harm in comparison to people taking alcohol, which is obviously carcinogenic and has significant chronic issues associated with heavy use, but even in some cases, fairly moderate use. Some people try to use MDMA once or twice over a, or three times over a short period of time with say a festival. What kind of responses do they end up getting? Like, is it a complete ablation of, Mm. of the effects or how does that change come day two? Typically, I think again, this is something that does vary a little bit with different, between different people. And of course it's dependent on dose as well, but there is absolutely a huge reduction in the enjoyment that they have on the second day and so this would be the sort of thing that we would talk to somebody about with the loop is again how to keep yourself safe and also maximize your enjoyment if we can explain to them that hey if you instead of taking it two days in a row here and then having none left why don't you take it one day here and one day at the next festival you're going to in a few months and then you'll have a much more enjoyable time at both, have much less negative effects in both the short term and the long term. What we, what, what I tend to see and what I tend to have from speaking to people is, yeah, they will absolutely come to us a little bit confused that they've taken MDMA a few times in the past, but they've, it's the first time they've done it at a festival. This is the second day. Uh, maybe they've got a, a different type of pill the second day. And so they come into the testing service and they're saying, well, this pill was really, you know, maybe it gave me horrible anxiety or something like that. 
that because there's no serotonin to balance out the rest of the effects. So they really get the side effects shine through compared to the enjoyment. So it's not like it's a completely horrible experience necessarily. They'll still get the stimulation. They'll still be able to dance. But the positive effects, I think from speaking to them, it sounds like are not really worth the negative effects that they then have to deal with. There's also the issue that we don't uh, get exposed to as much at the loop is the come down in the the week afterwards. We obviously don't hear about that, but from speaking to people who have maybe decided to change their behavior or who are just happy to have that negative experience, yeah, taking it two days in a row also significantly worsens the after effects in the week afterwards. Yeah, the come down is something which for a time I thought was, I still don't know how I feel about people talking about a week of negative effects. I think that's overblown for people using in a, in a reasonable way or even three days. But especially in the acute period, I used to think after I had experiences for the first time that even and those acute effects were overblown because the first time I did MDMA or MDA, I, I just felt fine after and went to sleep. So it didn't really match up with what some people were reporting. And then somehow over time, possibly lining up with, I ended up with depression a period of time ago. And, and since that right. period, intactogens somehow totally exacerbate that in the acute after effect period in a way that they didn't initially. Yeah. And there's even weird differences between the drugs. So it is this this issue of, I think, for people that have anxiety or depression issues, they really have to take into consideration that a momentary period of feeling substantially better is sometimes not worth, yeah. especially on a frequent basis, that period after. At least for me, it makes it a hard pro and con list to put together that still comes out in favor of using the drugs when there's mm. that kind of negative response after. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, especially early on, I think if they realize that heavy use early on will potentially really impact their ability to enjoy it later and will really make the side effects so bad that they or can really make the side effects so bad that they will decide to stop taking it. I think if they really knew and believed that early on, then I think they would change their behavior quite significantly because they wouldn't want that because they do enjoy it and they want to continue enjoying it rather than it being something that they're able to enjoy for a year. And then it starts to have a really negative impact on their life and they can't ever have it again because it just completely cripples them in the week afterwards. The high dose thing though, obviously that has to do with the drug market and the industry and suppliers. But is there any sense of why there would be a desire to put such an unnecessary amount? If anything, you would want from an economic standpoint, I would think to put less in and try to get more for your money. So this idea of putting 300 milligrams into one tablet, what's the point of that? So I think there are two major factors at play here. One of them is that in an illegal market, transporting 10,000 pills which each weigh 400 milligrams and contain 100 milligrams of MDMA is going to generate you less profit than transporting 10,000 pills, which each contain 200 milligrams of MDMA and 400 milligrams total material. So there's an incentive to make the pills more potent and more concentrated because you can smuggle in the same truck, you can fit more MDMA. There's also the issue that I think a lot of the pressing organizations are in a kind of competition with each other, they want their pill to hit the market and have a lot of um, buzz in inverted commas around it. They want people to talk about it and say, man, that was a really strong pill. The IKEA tablet uh, with the IKEA logo, that was really strong. It really knocked me on my feet. 
then people are going to seek out to buy that brand of tablet and therefore they think that's going to increase their profits. What they very cleverly do is once they've done their initial batch, then subsequent batches of the same tablet will contain much less MDMA. So you're right that the incentive for them, it makes a lot more sense if they can sell the same tablet with less MDMA in it for the same price. So I think, yeah, there's this big motivation here for them that when we first see a pill, yeah, these can be really, really strong and that catches people off guard because, hey, maybe they're used to taking the weak IKEA tablets and they've been, you know, they bought 10 of them at the beginning of the year. They've gone through them. They don't have much experience with ecstasy outside of that. They then take it. They buy a new batch from that's the very first run of a new batch. And they think, oh, these are from the same supplier. I'm pretty sure they're going to be the same. But no, that first batch is much, much stronger. That first run of that new batch is much, much stronger. And it really catches them off guard. Are high doses like that even reliably more pleasurable? I, I would get the sense that when you get to say 250 milligrams for your average person, it's probably not going to feel much mm. better, but you're going to have an increase in physical side effects and yeah. maybe some confusion sort of stepping in. So merely going higher, maybe to some extent, like to 200 milligrams, but I'm trying to see the logic behind the occasional 300 milligram pill, because even, even as a way to market your product is, and then yeah. get people to feel like it's a strong, reliable. I, I don't think that they're trying to create this buzz of that was a strong, that was a reliably enjoyable experience and it was really pleasant. They're trying to get people to say, man, that pill was really, really strong. It got me completely messed up. I think British culture with regards to intoxication is a little bit different to most other countries in the world that British people really like being very intoxicated in a way that I don't think other nationalities enjoy to the same extent. That seems like a problematic goalpost <laughs> for your use if you're always trying to yeah. just go to like max, as far away from baseline as you can get, and that's where you want to be. I think it is a it is a cultural issue. It is something that British society needs to consider, and I think it is something that actually is changing, but it, it's something that, yeah, we're still going to, whereas uh, in the US, people do just seem to take MDMA a, a lot more cautiously. And I think the price is likely to factor into that and the availability. Um, but yeah, I think as well on top of that, there is a cultural, um, it, it's in many circles normal to get really messed up. Uh, and as I say, I think that is changing. And I think the realization that you can be sensible about it and you can have a more reliably enjoyable time rather than um, it being a roulette game of whether you have a good time, feel unpleasantly high or even go to hospital. The realization that you can choose between them, people obviously want to choose to just have a good time without the horrible side effects and they are starting to, but it's a slow process. And I imagine a big part of this is just how or if drugs are integrated into society because... Mm. If you have something that is never that's never integrated, then people don't have an idea about how they would use outside of just a purely hedonistic or careless way, yeah. or they or they don't have the idea that you would be careful. Like they are signing up to just have some other experience, and whatever that is, is it is what it is. Instead of they're trying to get the greatest benefit from the experiences they could, I would imagine a lot of people using MDMA in that way 
aren't aware of this other context and would not picture sitting down with a hundred milligrams with a partner to talk through their relationship. And yeah. they're not even aware of these other ways to get benefit from it. Or you can also have a drug that is not integrated in a good way, like alcohol seems to be for at least the UK and maybe some other places where it's also a little too focused yeah. on, I think what would reasonably call be called abuse. Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily even about integration. It's just about what is normal within the society. What, when people see their friends using these substances, be they alcohol or MDMA, how do the people in my social circle approach this? There is the saying that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. If the five people you spend the most time with are taking a gram of MDMA over the course of an evening, well, that's going to be normal to you. And to you, moderate or low use that you think is being really sensible is only taking half a gram. Whereas actually, if everybody around you is taking MDMA in a really therapeutic almost kind of way and that it's always in a really gentle house party environment and there's an encouragement that hey you're not going to feel unbelievably euphoric for every second of this that's a part of it embrace that it's just something that happens there'll be lows and there'll be um, peaks within this experience then there isn't the same thinking oh I feel like I'm coming down a little bit I better take them some more there's a thinking of oh uh, this is one of the troughs that my friend talked about where the experience feels a bit less intense. Okay, cool. Yeah, the redosing thing, which I think a lot of people get into with MDMA and also with stimulants. I mean, it can happen with any drug, but it seems to occur there. And I think stimulants are a good example because people really don't want to have the experience end and they don't, they're just going into it to have as much fun as they can, as long as they can. People keep that up with MDMA and that's a problem. But then with stimulants, you get entirely new issues that are arising like confusion and, and psychosis and hallucinations. When I look and research certain drugs that have a greater reputation for being used in that way, like, like an alpha PVP or a hexen, yep. and listen to people's experiences, it's concerning that people would enter into a kind of use where they have a gram and they know it's not wise to use a gram, but they're just going to use it all the way through and stay up yeah. as long as they can. It's hard to understand that mentality. And do you think it's possible to reach those people and guide them towards a different, more sensible path? I think it depends to a certain extent on what their intention is with it and again what their what is a social norm to them um there's a really good tool by the global drug survey called the speedometer the idea is that you put in parameters about your use and it allows you to compare your use to other people who use that drug as an average of everybody who's taken that survey rather than as an average of the people who are your friends who you know about their use so it's a really good way to put in context the fact that if somebody is going through a gram and their their friends do the same thing then they think that's normal by using um this global drug survey tool then they can see oh not only is my use not normal but yeah my friend's use isn't normal either so i think yeah you could absolutely be able to reach those people but it depends if they are going into it and and the attitude that they have going into it and their sort of physiology in some cases it, it can be like a problematic addictive behavior they're aware that this is having a negative impact on their life and they're aware that they don't really want to in a way but in the same sense they still do it 
And that's really, really difficult for people to understand who haven't been through an addictive experience because it just sounds completely bizarre. Well, if you don't want to do it, just don't do it, right? But there is so much more to it than that when the whole system that you have in your brain that is able to make decisions is being overridden by a different system that is telling you something else. Well, you are your brain. The decisions that you make are kind of controlled by the chemicals that get released in your brain. And yeah, you have a big impact on that. But if you, if your brain has learned in a neurological sense that a compound produces a big dopamine rush, then the anticipation of taking that in the same way that people really enjoy rolling a cigarette before they've even had the nicotine, the anticipation of that releasing a huge amount of nicotine can be enough to override the amount of um, dopamine that you could say release with willpower alone, and therefore you're almost compelled to do it. And so it requires a really strong like social support structure, um, really good like positive reinforcement of good behavior, positive alternatives that people can do that will also reduce uh, release dopamine in their brain and cause them to get that good feeling, that satisfied feeling. But those activities are wholesome and are better for them. You can't just say, well, why don't you just not? If somebody's in the same setting that they're usually in among their friends using in that harmful way, and they've got this dopamine imbalance, if you like, and they've got this addiction issue, then it is so much more complex than just say no. Yeah, it is possible to build self-control when it comes to drugs or any other activity, but there is a compulsion or a drive that can be very strong, which can sort of sneak up on you and and start causing yeah. problems. And it's unfortunate when I hear, I've brought him up on the podcast before because he's one of the few people I keep seeing stuff from um, when I don't want to. And it's Peter Hitchens, which you might All be right, yeah. aware of him. His viewpoints are represented in some portion of the population. Yeah. And he'll make you know, an argument that, it's all choice and no, it's totally wrong to view it as a compulsion. And yeah, if people are going around defending, trying, you know, with good intentions to defend people who have an addiction by saying it's a disease that's driving their behavior, I understand why they're saying that. You have to recognize that control does exist and, and there is an element of choice, but it's sad to see people who are so yeah. unsympathetic for what somebody is going through when they have one part of their brain totally aware that they are making choices that aren't best for their long-term future, yeah. but for the sake of short-term gain and relief from whatever they're dealing with, they are still driven to the behavior. That's a horrible position to be in. And there's sometimes an unsympathetic look yeah. that I see from outsiders. Yeah, I think if somebody's never experienced that, it's so, so difficult to understand how you can almost have two thought processes in your brain and one is able to override the outwardly presented uh, personality's decision. It's It's just... Even I struggle to try and get my head around that, despite having had an experience like that in the past. It's really, it's really counterintuitive. I mm -hmm. think something that's fascinating about Peter Hitchens is that, if I remember correctly, his mother really battled with alcoholism. So it's really interesting to see that even though he's got somebody close to him, he is incredibly passionately of the opinion that he is 
And I think that just goes to show that although you can have it very close to you, but you may still not really be able to understand what somebody has gone through, even even when you're that close to it. I can only imagine how difficult it is for a person who has never had any addiction issues themselves or in their family, and they just see these kind of people that they don't really know, it's a distant, maybe they only even read about it in the newspaper, then how are they supposed to empathise with that when it's, even for people who have been through it and been close to it, um, difficult to get your head around? Sadly, having somebody that you're, you have a relationship with, having them go through this sort of experience doesn't always build compassion within yourself for them. I don't know how much you know about it, and I don't know very much, but I was reading recently about groups in uh, Northern Ireland who have a very harsh stance against drugs Mm. and have been doing for a while what is going on in the Philippines of just no care at all for especially drug dealers, but even in many cases, people who are just using drugs, there's just this feeling like they're a bad part of society. And even if their family member is that person, that may engender even more hate yeah. of the person because it is somebody who they they care about and they're acting as though their choice to use drugs yeah. or deal with drugs is sort of a rejection of their family or or rejection of the community. It's just, I mean, not really a question there, but it's just amazing whenever I see that kind of yeah. hatred based around an activity like drug use. Mm. I think that's where the education side of things becomes so important. I think it's a lot easier to become fearful and then angry about drugs if you really don't understand it and you don't understand why it's difficult for people. Whereas if you understand and you're able to empathize, then you can see how is that a threat to me? Is it a threat to me at all? If it is a threat, then what can I do about that? And it's a lot easier to approach it instead of with anger, with rationality, and um, to take those rational steps to try and, as I said earlier, put that person in a social support system where their uh, friends around them are not using drugs, where they're not in a situation where they're likely to you know, get bored or have that uh, psychological craving triggered in the same way. Just yeah, be able to approach it in a more rational sense. Yeah, I have just a couple more questions. One is when talking about psychedelics with people through the loop, is there an emphasis or a mention of HPPD? Because I see a lot of debate about whether that should ever be mentioned because a lot of people in the community feel it's not really a thing. And so I'm wondering if it is something that is brought up as a potential harm. The harm reduction worker who gives the advice will really massively tailor because it's like a one-on-one or maybe there are two friends who have come to get their results together. It's a really great opportunity to tailor it to where their knowledge is and where it needs to be. If somebody comes and says, I only use mushrooms at festivals, magic mushrooms at festivals, then, and I only go to three festivals a year, they're not going to start talking to them about HPPD in the same way as somebody who says, oh yeah, I use them every weekend as a religious thing or I only use them at festivals, but I go to a festival once a week for the whole two months of the British summer. So, yeah, absolutely. If it's appropriate to to bring that up and it seems like, you know, even if somebody is an infrequent user, but it seems like they really, really know all of the typical things that we might bring up about set and setting, then... Yeah, that could be a good opportunity to talk to them about HPPD 
and just make sure that they're aware of that as an issue as well. If it's somebody who's um, less experienced, then we would focus on really conveying that message about reducing the acute harms uh, first and foremost. When it comes to education and trying to provide an ideal form of it, which is obviously something I care about and I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do it, what are your thoughts on attempts that are more entertainment focused? And I have drugs lab in mind, but it could apply to any yeah. case where you're putting a probably a greater emphasis on entertainment than on education, even yeah. if you're including some education in it. Do you think that is a good strategy? Do you think it's dangerous? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so I think um, this is something that is an issue that is very relevant to me. I did some videos with Vice last year, uh, or even in 2016, actually, they were filmed now, where it was a pretty dry lecture almost monologue to the to the camera about the harms of different drugs and these were going to be made initially into some bookends for a program that would they were doing they ended up doing them as seven short films about each drug and in order to kind of counterbalance the fact that yeah it was a pretty dry just me talking about the harms and risks of different drugs and um, it was against the green screen in the background they put a whole load of different like strange animations uh, a unicorn like at one point my head hinges open and some things float out of my skull and then it, it, like an animation effect. So yeah, I, I think initially when I saw that, I was pretty jaw dropped and I sort of thought, oh my gosh, how is this going to be received? They ended up being seen by several million people. And I absolutely don't for a second think that if they had just been the dry lecture that I had given originally, they would have reached that many people. What was important there, though, was that factually, it was absolutely on point. I went through, um, obviously, when I did the initial filming, I had a little bit of an idea of what I was, how I was going to talk about and frame the issues then before the release i was able to go through it was mostly spelling errors in the um uh, subtitles um that were the issue where i was using complex terminology um so yeah this is something that i think it is absolutely a valid technique for reaching a wider audience and i think that can be really valuable because even if yes you've got a bit more of a focus on entertainment if you're getting people a message that they wouldn't have otherwise heard then you're potentially keeping people a lot safer than you would be otherwise however if you are reaching a wide audience, no matter how you do it, you have a huge obligation to make sure that that information is um, complete and accurate and is not going to unintentionally lead to more harm than um, people would have been exposed to otherwise. So with Drugs Lab, for example, uh, some of the videos are really great and um, I've been really impressed with some of them. There are others where there are factual errors, which I think could lead to people potentially getting hurt. And it's a real shame that that wasn't picked up before those videos were shown and went out to that wide audience. So, yeah, I think entertainment absolutely has a role in reaching people and educating people. I think there are a lot of things that we could do to make drug education better. But I think we do have to be careful about how we go about that and not forget that we are dealing with a sensitive issue which could result in people getting hurt. You don't think there's an issue with, I mean, it's one thing to have sort of entertaining little graphics or whatever added to a video that is centered around somebody providing pure education, like in your case. Yeah. But do you think, I'm inclined to feel like there's an issue whenever the entertainment is showing use and showing 
what I think are also dramatized reactions that are meant to include more laughter and smiling and yeah. whatnot than really took place. Hmm. And if you have 500,000 people viewing that and the content is 95% in terms of time based around showing a 25-year-old female uh, with big pupils smiling into the camera. Yeah. Is that just raising interest in the drug without providing much education at all? Because I feel like people are going to remember the 25-year-old the yeah. girl with the big pupils, not the one mention of make sure to weigh what you use or something. I think it's difficult because, again, we run up to this, this issue. If it was a completely dry, like um, a six-hour video of the whole experience then would people would that be watched widely would as um if 10 percent of the people take away that you must weigh things from drugs lab uh videos and there are a million people who watch it well you've got a hundred thousand people a really valuable message about weighing things if you've got ten thousand people watching a video um, which is six hours long and goes into, you know, just shows every single part of it, the, the negatives, the positives, the boring bits, etc. And you teach 100% of those people that it's really important to weigh it. You still only taught 10% of the 100,000. So I think you have to balance it. I don't think drug use is inherently an incredibly negative thing. If it can be done in a way that minimizes the risks... We have to accept that we're never, ever going to eliminate drug use. So although, sure, that is going to result in the lowest amount of harm, if you can't do that, then, yeah, maybe we have to set a compromise point and say, all right, well, people are going to use drugs. Let's try and get as many as possible to come to as little harm as possible. So that's where I think it's important. If you're reaching a wider audience and you're having a positive impact only, so if you're say both um, videos result in a 10% a rate of positive impact, when you reach that wider audience, so long as you don't compromise that 10% or introduce a 2% of people who are going to come to more harm, then I really don't see a problem with it. I don't think there's an inherent issue with showing good effects of drug use because let's be honest, a lot of people, and maybe even almost exclusively, uh, people are using drugs for their recreational, enjoyable effects, and to pretend that that's not happening would be unrealistic. So, if we can, if we can get a lot of people to watch a video and get them to take away a really good message from that, then I think that's um, valuable, even if not every single person takes away that great message. I agree that there can be some fraction of the audience that is taking only positives away in terms of some increase in their knowledge. My concern is if the other, some portion of the other 900,000 people, it's not just a neutral viewing experience, but rather that they now have an increased interest in drugs. They're also mm -hmm. young people primarily. It's just how YouTube is. And for that channel, I have a feeling it's quite young. They have an increased interest and this just raises the chance that they may enter into typical uninformed use when that use comes up because the primary thing sticking in their brain at that point is just the 10 minutes of yeah. some enjoyable thing that they saw. I mean, I, I see what you're saying is essentially, could this encourage drug use and encourage it with a with the same trend that we've historically had for drug use so if it, drug use increases by 10 percent, then is it also going to increase the harms the people who come to harm as a result of it by 10 percent um what i would say is that and to a certain extent we get this criticism with the loop as well is people say 
If people feel like they have a lower risk of taking drugs, then they're going to be more likely to take drugs. And for us, the key thing is that even though more people may use the drugs, because so many are coming away with such a positive message about reducing the harm, actually the overall level of harm is being reduced. And so that's where I think the balance needs to be struck. You can't necessarily say it's bad to show drug use in a positive light. And you can't necessarily say it's good to only show drug use in a negative light. You have to be able to strike a balance so that even if you are showing positive aspects of drug use, overall, are you contributing to an overall reduction in the number of people who are coming to harm? And yeah, absolutely. If the overall result is an increase in the number of people coming to harm, then I think it's worth asking really serious questions about what's happening there. But I would argue that the net impact of a show like Drugs Lab at at the very least can be a very positive impact on society in that you have people who are building a culture of drug use isn't a reckless thing that you do just on a whim when you've had 20 beers and you think, oh yeah, I'm going to take an ecstasy tablet now. It's encouraging this thing that they have medics on hand. They're measuring the um, heart rate and the um, maybe even the blood pressure as well. I don't think that's displayed on screen. They are in every one, I think, if they're working with a powder, it does show them weighing it. They know how much they're taking. They're, it really is changing it, it, it isn't presenting a conventional cultural apo- approach certainly that we see in the uk where people buy a gram they use a credit card to split it into f- uh, quarters or eighths of a gram and then they take that without weighing it to check was it 1.2 grams or was it 0.8 without thinking about the purity and compensating for that so i think it's not a black and white issue there's not it's not necessarily bad and I think they could go about it better. But I think overall, even if it does increase drug use slightly, I really am optimistic that it's improving the culture around it and it's overall providing a net decrease in the harms. Yeah, not to combat your point by focusing on a specific example, but if my memory serves me correctly, I think their cocaine episode included showing dosing in the way that you described of having a known amount and then just cutting it without weighing the individual lines. I mean, I think there is a need always for pragmatism when we're giving harm reduction advice. At The Loop, for example, we recognize that people aren't bringing scales into music events. And so there are valid harm reduction strategies that we can do to deal with that. So we will say to people with cocaine in the same way that they said, I think, with the drugs lab is take many very small doses because cocaine is a drug that comes on very quickly. Um, It is a drug that very few people weigh. And so although in an ideal world, in a harm elimination focus, we would absolutely say to people, well, first of all, don't use cocaine. But um, let's imagine cocaine was a completely safe drug, then we would say, yeah, you need to weigh it. But in reality, our focus is harm reduction. And if we can get people to shift towards a safer way of using and even get people to move from using few large lines to um, many smaller lines so that they can see how their body is responding and reduce the risk of going overboard, then that is a net decrease in harm, even if it's maybe not the best practice that we see. So yeah, it would have been really, I would have liked to have seen in that episode. And there was also in the ketamine episode, as I recall, the scales that they were using, I didn't really feel had the precision that they should have been using. 
there are things that I really think they could and it would be trivial to do better. But I don't think that overall, the result is going to be a net increase in harm. It is an unknown. And I guess maybe mm. I'm just more, um, I don't want to say more cautious, or maybe I'm just more uh, cynical about the ability for entertainment to be good because I'm making the most yes. uh, dry videos <laughs> imaginable. So I have a... A slight bias towards dryness. Um, yeah. And yeah I, no, think- I hope the impact is is positive. And, mm. and there is something good about showing a different side of drug use. I agree with yeah. that entirely. And it's also why I feel when people are able to do so, that it's worthwhile for them to make their drug use inappropriate settings known so that it's not always um, associated with people who have a problem with drugs who tend to get the most attention. I would also say that maybe there is for you because you're at arm's length a little bit from people on the ground a bit more whereas working in the loop so when I was only uh, working in with kind of drugs in an academic sense yeah, I would absolutely have had a view that was closer to yours, but seeing how bad it can be and how bad it often is in the real world does make you start to think, ah, you know what? They really need to be weighing that. But actually, this person isn't even in the part of their educational journey that I can I can suggest that as a realistic option because they're just going to scoff and laugh and ignore it. So I'm going to instead suggest to them, the Loop has a campaign called Crush, Dab, Wait um, for MDMA. And the idea is that you crush the drugs, you dip in the tip of your little finger, and then you put that on your gums. And, you know, that is completely not the best way to do it. And it's so easy to weigh MDMA doses and put them into what we call bombs in the UK, where it's wrapped in a Rizzler paper and people swallow it. But it's such an improvement from the way that people are doing or have sometimes and do sometimes do it that we have to accept that we're not going to ever eliminate the harm we can't even necessarily reduce it to the maximum extent that is possible so we have to settle for reaching the maximum number of people and trying to get a net decrease in harms when you were talking about cocaine and saying what you would tell someone and first thing was don't use cocaine. Do you feel like that is an important part of the the harm reduction message? I know mm. there's a TED talk from Ethan Nadelman, who was running the Drug Policy Alliance in the U.S., and his sort of thing for what he would tell his uh, his teenager was, don't use drugs, don't use drugs, but if you do, yeah. then follow these steps. There's part of me that feels that's just bowing to people who oppose drugs and giving them some reassurance that you're not promoting the, the use of substances, but I don't know if that actually is useful to include in all harm reduction messages. If somebody's that interested in drugs, mm-hmm. then it's not that they haven't heard it from society enough that they shouldn't use drugs. I don't know if your one additional mention is going to make or break things. I, I think it's, for me, it is a caveat that I think is important to include. Because of course, when I say, oh, the least harm, we want to reduce harm as much as possible somebody clever is always going to chime up and say oh well the least harmful way to do it is to not use it at all and that is absolutely correct and i think it is yeah worth mentioning when i'm in a public space like this 
if I'm giving a harm reduction interview to somebody, then again, depending on where they are in their educational journey, depending on their level of experience, what they already know, then it may not be appropriate for me to to keep repeating that at the beginning of every piece of advice that I give. And it may even be the case that, yeah, you know what, that isn't a valuable use of my time to bring that point up because they're well aware that the least harmful way is to not use drugs at all. What they need to know to reduce their harm for that next 24 hours or hopefully even uh, for every festival they go to in the future is that a sensible dose of MDMA is 120 milligrams or that if they are at home then they can use a reagent test or if they are in a party then drinking a sensible amount of water. Those are the things that I'm going to choose to spend my limited time on when I'm working with that particular person. When I'm with an audience where there's a huge number of people that uh, could potentially listen to this, and there's always somebody who is um, wants to show that they uh, have considered something that you haven't thought of, yes, I do feel the need, unfortunately or fortunately, to, to say and um, prefix some of my statements with the way to reduce harm the most is to not use drugs at all. As I said in the beginning, unfortunately, the episode came to an abrupt ending here because my recording got messed up. I definitely recommend checking out all of the links in the description for finding more from Guy, The Loop, Cosmicade, Reagent Tests UK, and I'll be back soon with another episode. And again, if you want to support TDC, you can go to thedrugclassroom.com support.